0: Uh, We're actually going to start with a reading from the Old Testament, one that many of you will be very familiar with, uh, and it's Psalm 23. So it should appear up on the screen, but if you want to follow along on a phone Bible, if you've got one, an app or something, feel free to do that too. So this is Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our second reading today is from Romans chapter 8, and we'll be reading from verse 31 uh, all the way through to the end, which is verse 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, we are here to finish our series in Romans chapter 8, one of the real, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, one of the most beloved, one of the most comforting um, and one of the most assuring, as we're going to find out today. Um, before we finish uh, with this passage, let's just do a little bit of a recap on Romans chapter 8, where we've been. Um, some of you have just joined us today. Um, so this is, this is where we've been for the last few weeks. Paul started with these words. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The, the powers of darkness have had their fangs removed. Because of Christ's death, our, our sins are forgiven, so they can't crush us. And because of his resurrection, death is defeated, so the grave holds no fear for us. And more than that, we found out that we have been adopted as God's children. God is our Father, and through the Spirit, he hears and responds to even our most incoherent prayers. He promises that he will never let us down, cannot fail to bring us through all trouble, and along with all of creation, ultimately renew us and restore us with resurrection bodies fit for eternal life with him. This glorious gospel gives us glorious hope. Because now even if we go through seasons of, suffering and pain or disappointment, it is never meaningless, never fruitless, because God has predestined his people for a glorious future. This chapter reads like a a symphony played by an orchestra and the the, the volume, the intensity has been crescendoing all the way to this point. And as it builds we sense this tension that is longing to resolve. We're waiting for it. Our minds and hearts are attuned to it. Because Romans 8 is an invitation to lean into our identity as God's people, that we are people who are not just saved from things, from sin and death, but saved to something. Saved, as N.T. Wright puts it, to live as a little microcosm of God's kingdom mirrors, albeit faded ones, of God's glory and goodness. That's the the good news, but there's a tension with that, and the tension is that if we are to do this, then we will suffer. If we go public with this, then there will be opposition. And so if we do, we've got to ask ourselves, well, is that a risk that we're willing to take? Those are the sorts of things that, we would want to invite into our lives? Can we take that risk? Can we risk declaring our allegiance to Christ the King? Paul resolves this tension here in the last verses. He says, What then shall we say in response to all these things? No, not what shall I say, what shall you say? What should we say? What, what should the people of God together corporately say in response to these promises, but also these realities? And the answer is that we should say we are assured. We are assured. We're assured that everything will be okay in the end. We're assured that all our work will not be for nothing, that there is something beyond struggling and strife that there is purpose and meaning to our lives, and ultimately, that loyalty to Jesus is worthwhile. So we need to know today, and this is what we're gonna look at, why we need assurance, how can we find assurance, why we lose assurance, and how we can find it again. So first of all, why do we we need assurance? Uh, In these final verses, it's kind of like Paul letting himself go a bit. You can sense the emotion in his own words. This isn't cold, hard, theologizing. This is Paul speaking from his very heart, from his guts. This is a song, almost. It's almost like old-time gospel music, call and response. Paul asks a question, and then he responds. And he asks three questions, and each one speaks to uh, a part of human experience. And the first is opposition. Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the human answer to that question is lots of things, actually. So many things. We hear people say all the time, I feel like the world is against me. That every time things seem to look up, something or someone pushes you back down. You know, some people have real enemies, real human enemies. Now, Paul may or may not know this as he's writing, but he's writing to the church in Rome who are on the cusp of experiencing the most brutal season of persecution that you could possibly imagine, where men and women and children will actually invite death into their lives by being prepared to say, I'm a Christian. Now, that is not the reality for us at this moment in time, and yet perhaps some of us really do have people who are out to get us, perhaps because of our faith, perhaps just because bullies exist in life. It's nice to think that perhaps that kind of opposition finishes in primary school, but we know it doesn't. We'll find opposition in many aspects of our lives. And probably many of us wouldn't have enemies we can call by name, but still feel opposed. You might feel like the systems of the world are designed to keep you from succeeding. That the game of life is rigged so that the house always wins. And being opposed makes you feel horrible, makes you feel weak, helpless, powerless. You might think, everybody is against me and even those who are for me I don't know if they can be trusted it embeds in you a sense of suspicion because everyone might become a potential enemy is opposition part of your experience maybe it is the second one is condemnation Paul says, who then is the one who condemns? And again, the human answer is everyone. (laughs) Lots of people are condemning. Accusing voices come from many directions. They might come from within yourself. Because all of us have done things we regret, things we did that weren't right, or things we avoided doing that were right. People we've wounded, injustices we've ignored, help we never gave. Unkind words spoken out of anger and not apologised. The voice comes from within sometimes. What a horrible person you are. You're a failure. You're unworthy. You're broken. You deserve punishment. Others will punish, me, punish you, or if they don't, you should punish yourself. That voice can come from outside too. The voice of culture through social media Everybody is fitter, stronger, happier, richer, and more successful than you are. You're a disappointment. You're not holy enough. You're not good enough, strong enough, pretty enough. Successful enough. And so the condemnation voice comes from all sorts of places. Is that your experience? Perhaps it is. The third one is abandonment. Paul asks, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And more broadly, perhaps, can I be, will I be left alone, unloved and unwelcome? And the human answer, again, is yes, that is our greatest fear. We simply cannot flourish without love. Whether a spouse, a family member, a friend, we long to be intimately known and yet totally accepted. It's our greatest hope and our greatest fear to be known for all our flaws and yet still to be accepted even at our worst with someone who would want to be with us no matter what we go for or what we're like. That's why to feel unloved is so painful. It's to feel abandoned, lonely, isolated, disconnected. Love enables people to move past hardship to overcome difficulty, weather the storms of life. Because you can think, well, I can do that, I can overcome that because I'm not alone. And so to feel unloved, or maybe even just not to feel loved enough, makes life hard, even unbearable. Maybe that's part of your experience. Let's put those questions again. Who can be against us? Who can condemn us? Who will abandon us? The answer to all of them might well be, well, people will. But some perhaps would even answer, well, God. For some people inside and outside the church community I feel like God is against them. And God condemns them and God will abandon them or has abandoned them. I've met people who claim to not believe in God uh, and yet are intensely angry with him. (laughs) And if they're asked to imagine what kind of expression God has on his face when he looks at them, it would be a frown of anger or disappointment or regret. Paul knows that these experiences are real and pervasive. And everyone experiences them at some point in their lives to greater or lesser intensities. And so Paul, at this high point of his letter, finds himself unable to invite the church, this church, the church, to move forward with confidence unless they can find assurance that there is a positive answer to these questions. Not a human answer, but a divine answer where we can know that even in the darkest of valleys, there is assurance that all will be well. And so where can we find this assurance? Well, we have to then look now at the answers that Paul gives to these questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? I think God is for us is probably one way to sum up the entire book of Romans. Jesus Paul says, earlier in chapters, says, Jesus has made peace between us and God so that the mighty and sovereign king of creation operates on our behalf. God is our ally. God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Some will say, of course, well, lots of people, actually, lots of things. And this is true, and Paul's not saying that we would never experience opposition, far from it. He's saying that even if we do, we have such powerful security in God that nothing can ultimately harm. God fights for his people against every opposing power and it's a fight that he has already won and it's a fight that he cannot lose. The game of life may well be rigged but you know what? We play by different rules. We can be strong even in weakness. We can be powerful even when marginalized. We can be victorious even in defeat, and we can be hopeful even when facing death. Paul stresses God's provision even more strongly. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You might imagine a parent um, who pays for their daughter's tertiary education, uh, parents who chip in, tens of thousands of dollars, there's no hex here, it's just paid up front in full. Imagine then if that, that young woman finds herself unable to buy a single textbook, but feels unable to go to her parents to ask for them to buy it for her. You know, of course they're going to buy it for her, because what's a textbook in comparison to the full tuition? They're not going to hesitate. It's, it's a, a drop in the ocean if she really needs it. Paul kind of takes that idea and expands it out to cosmic proportions. He says, God was willing to give the most precious thing that he has, his own son, Jesus, to die, to suffer. As if God was prepared to take on himself the pain of sacrificing what is most precious to him, how much more is he prepared to give us what we need, what is precious to us, to defend us, to provide us, to secure us. And so when Paul says all things, it isn't about a a wish list of desires. It's about receiving all we need to have joy in every circumstance. Paul means the fullness of God's salvation in Jesus, a, a renewed and cleansed heart, a transforming life, and a secure future. And so... If God is for us, who can be against us? Ultimately, no one. The second one is condemnation. What does he say? He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who's a greater judge than God? Who is more qualified to judge between the guilty and the innocent? Who is more qualified to know everything that is in every human heart? The answer is no one's more qualified. No one comes close. So it must be that for Paul, God's judgment is weightier than everyone else's. What he says matters more than anyone else. And he says this, he says, if Christ has taken your guilty judgment on himself, then my declaration of innocence is final and absolute. And if Jesus is day and night praying to God on our behalf, constantly offering himself to his Father as proof of our justification, then who are we to think otherwise? So anytime we feel condemned or guilty for anything we've done, we can say with boldness, yes, that was true. That was horrible. Yes, that was sinful. But Jesus has taken away my guilt and shame. I'm forgiven. I'm justified. I'm innocent. I don't have to hide. I can come to God with regret, yes, but not with shame or embarrassment. I can tell him everything. Because the day Jesus died, our forgiveness was one. Past, present, and future. So anyone who thinks, I know God's forgive me, but I, I feel like I have to earn his forgiveness, God says, no, there's nothing you can do. It was done, once for all. And anyone who says, I know God's forgive me, God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, then the answer is, who are you to withhold from yourself what God would not have withhold from you? You may hear the voice from within and without that says, "Look at what you've done," and you can reply, "Yes, true, but look what Jesus has done." If you're assured that God has forgiven you because of Jesus, then you never feel, need feel, condemned. So, if God is for us, who can be against us? If if Christ has has paid for our sins, then who can condemn us? Finally, what about Love. Paul writes, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. This final question really sums up all the others. If God loves us, he is for us. If God loves us, he forgives us. If we can be certain that his love will never fail, then we can be assured that all his promises will be fulfilled. Paul's own life is a testament to to that he believes what he says here. He was imprisoned, flogged, left for dead, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, in constant and perilous danger, gone without sleep, starving and thirsty, cold and naked. And yet in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 9, following that list of things, he can also say, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. In the midst of trial, he's full of hope because he knows that there is nothing that can separate him from God's love. It's so steadfast that it will hold us tight even when hope seems lost. And it might be that sometimes we feel like we're on the losing side, that we are abandoned, opposed, accused. But the whole point of Romans 8 is that our ultimate end cannot be determined by our circumstances. It's not determined by our strength or our foresight or our endurance. It's not determined by our status or our wisdom victory in the end is determined by the strength of the one who loves us victory is determined by the strength of the one who leads us our captain our hero our shepherd Um, N.T. Wright uh, wrote a reflection on Psalm 23 we heard read before he wrote this Those who follow the Messiah into the valley of the shadow of death will find that they need fear no evil. Though they sometimes seem like sheep for the slaughter, yet they may trust the shepherd whose love will follow them all the days of their life. The good shepherd leads his sheep and he leads them to green pastures. But this shepherd is no pushover. Sometimes you've seen the the artwork, Christian artwork, Jesus as the shepherd, who, I don't know, blonde hair, blue eyes, very accurate contextually. Uh, Jesus is no pushover. His staff is no twig. He's a warrior, this shepherd. His staff is a mighty weapon. I love this uh, description of Christ's battle-like character in in Colossians 2.13. On the cross, the powers of evil attempted to make a spectacle of Jesus. They hung him up. They nailed him there. They stripped him naked. Vulnerable, shameful for all the world to see. They heaped on him scorn and shame and humiliation. This is the goodness of the gospel. The tables were turned. The cross became not a sign of humiliation, but of victory. It's because sin could not hold him there and death could not hold him down. Sin was paid for, death was killed. Jesus lived through death and he won through defeat. So to follow this kind of saviour means that the world is upside down for us. We, his beloved, his people, can who are united with him in his life, we can be assured that there is nothing to fear because... The greatest thing that humanity could fear was put to shame on the cross. But sometimes we do fear. Sometimes I feel condemned, anxious, lost. Sometimes, more often than I like to admit, I lose my assurance. Sometimes, a little like Peter, walking on the word towards Jesus, I get distracted by the winds and the waves and I Start to sink. And it's easy to hear a message like this and go, all oh, right, this is what I've got to do. I've just got to be more assured. And yes, we need more assurance. But it's not something that comes from gritting our teeth, taking a firmer step, struggling up to solid ground. This is how it comes. When the inner voice starts to recite, I don't feel worthy right now, so I must not be. I don't feel cared for right now, so I must not be. I don't feel secure right now, so I must not be. I don't feel loved right now, so I must not be. A tension is brought into our experience. I feel this way. I don't feel these things. And so it's tempting to go, well, therefore I'm not those things. How do we resolve that tension? We can't work our way out of it. I I don't feel strong, so I have to pull myself together. I don't feel worthy, so I have to work harder to be better. I don't feel close to God, so I must pray more, read my Bible more. Because deep down I might believe that God loves those who are strong, really. And God loves those who are moral, those who are pious. God loves those who are all put together. God loves those who are on an upward trajectory. But no, God loves those whom He's chosen. And He's chosen not the strong but the weak, not the worthy but the unworthy, not those who strive to work their way up to Him but those who trust that He needed to come down to them. Paul says, In all these things we are more than conquerors. And that might sound like self effort. God expects us to be super-Christians, to be super-conquerors. And the word is literally the super-victors. That's what that word says. And that would be true, I think, um, if, except for the next phrase. In these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So when the battle rages and we feel like we're sinking, we feel weak and hopeless, abandoned, assurance comes and only comes true assurance that runs deep when we look to our captain when the cross is more than just a nice idea but the place where the battle was won when the future is not just about us going to heaven but about jesus returning to earth as the warrior on the white horse come to vindicate his people and to set up his kingdom there is spiritual and metaphysical forces out there that the writers of Marvel movies could not possibly imagine. deaf life, angels, demons, the present, the future, powers, and yet Jesus has conquered them all. So our assurance comes not by razzing it up within our own self, but looking to the one who is solid and sure, who is faithful and true, The one who has conquered all, he is our assurance that even if we do not feel loved, we are. And even if we do not feel safe, we are. And even if we feel hopeless, there is hope. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. that brings us to the end of Romans chapter eight. Let me pray. And then we're going to sing about this kind of assurance. Heavenly Father, fix our eyes on Jesus, the creator and fulfiller of our faith, the one who has gone before us and in whom we have true hope, true assurance that stands firm and stands fast even in the most vicious of storms. May we look to him and rest in him, Lord, because he does not turn away any who come to him. Amen.